Numbers chapter 13, starting verse 30. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for all of your word. There are parts that for whatever reason in our flesh we just kind of cruise over it and we don't feel there's a whole much, whole lot of it there for us and I thank you that that's not true. Lord, I pray today that you'd open up your word to us, that we would understand it. We would see your glory, we would see your power and your love. God, I pray for your anointing to fill me afresh with your spirit. God, you know what your people need to, to hear and how to feed your sheep. So I pray you would do that during this time. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Wow, looks like a lot of people staying for the meal after, right? Please stay. Everyone is invited. Everyone is invited. God always takes care of us, gives us enough food. So, well, numbers. It's one of those books that seems to be like, it has nothing to do with today. You know, you get to Genesis and Exodus and you're all excited about it. Then you hit Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and you go, ah, not those three books. But there is all kinds of lessons in here that are for us today. And uh, by God's grace, we'll see what some of those are. What we find is this, is that the first generation out of Egypt, the one that God delivered from slavery, are, are remembered for their lack of faith. Not for their faith, for their lack of faith. Numbers is written less than one year after the Exodus. They saw all these miracles, and yet they had already forgotten God's mighty works. As a matter of fact, they didn't just forget them, they were putting God to the test. And so what we're going to learn today is this. This is the main point, that God disciplines and restores his unfaithful people with fatherly love and care. God is faithful, even when we're not. Now, uh, the original Hebrew title meant this, in the wilderness. That's what the original title meant. What they did with the first five books is they would take one of the, Greek, or one of the Hebrew words and that would be the title of the book. So this book was originally in the wilderness. And the author of this book is Moses. It was written around 1450 to 1410 B.C. And what happened is, when they took the, the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, and they put it in Greek, which is known as the Septuagint, when they did it, they changed the name of it, and they gave it the name Numbers, all right? And so what happens is, is they, they base that on the fact that they're, they're numbering the men of war at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book. So that's why we get the word Numbers. But I think the more accurate name for this book would be In the Wilderness, but obviously that's not the case. What we find in Numbers is there's three main sections. You can break it all down. Here are those three sections. Numbers chapters 1 through 9 is preparing to inherit the promised land. Then from 10 through 14, it's failure to inherit the promised land. And from 15 through 36, wandering and punishment in the promised land. That's how this book is grouped if you read through it. 
Um, what about Christ? You know, what we're doing is we're looking through all the books of the Bible, and we're saying, where's Jesus? Where's the gospel in every book? And in this book, we can find, a numerous, we can find these shadows of Christ throughout it. Uh, hang on with that one second. It's the manna from heaven, the water from the rock, Balaam's prophecy, and the bronze serpent. Now, let me ask you this. What is we would consider the most famous verse in the Bible? John chapter 3, verse 16, right? You ever look two verses ahead of that? Most people haven't. Take a look at this. First, Numbers 21, 5 through 9. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And I said, that's an example of Christ. Look at John 3, 16, going in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. See what I'm talking about? That the Old Testament has types and shadows of Christ all over it? God was showing us something 1,450 years before Jesus was on this earth we find that God was giving them an example, giving the people an example of what Christ would do. Okay, what was happening to these people? What happened is this, they sinned. And because they sinned, God was sending a punishment, the fiery serpents, right? And those fiery serpents would literally take their physical life, right? But they could do something. God provided a way. There was this fiery serpent on a stick, and if the people, by faith, would look at that serpent and say, you know what? Moses told us that if we would look upon that serpent, we wouldn't die. They had a physical death sentence. And if by faith they looked upon that, that raised serpent on that stick, then they would not die. God would save them. Sound like a familiar story? He's taking that and he's paralleling that in John. And he's saying, look, it's the same thing, except it's a spiritual picture. It's saying you have a death sentence on you. You're spiritually dead. If you've sinned once, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, if you've sinned once, you're separated from God for all eternity. Why? Because God is holy. Because God is holy. And what happens is, is that what occurs is that if you've sinned, then there needs to be punishment for that sin. Why? Because God is holy. And so he's going to punish sin. And in the Bible, it talks about this place where God punishes us for our sin is a place called hell. Now, that's an uncomfortable thing to talk about in most churches today, but we'll talk about it because it's in the Bible. And so we have this eternal death sentence on us, and there was nothing we could do about it. So what God did was he provided Christ. He provided a way that Jesus would come to earth and he would live the perfect sinless life. He met the requirements for us. Jesus never sinned in thought, word, or deed, ever. And that was the minimum requirement to spend eternity in heaven. No sin. We've already failed. So Jesus did what we couldn't do. He lived that perfect life. He met, he met the requirements of the law for us. Then he is brought to the cross. 
and punished for sins that weren't his. He was lifted up like that serpent. He was lifted up and the sins of all who would believe in Christ, who would receive that gift of salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. Their sins he was punished for. And I always say that's where the great exchange happened. Jesus' righteousness was counted as if it were ours, imputed to us, as if we had done it, but we didn't. And our sins, which deserve punishment, which Christ did not commit, he was punished for. The great exchange happens. And so if we, by faith, go to Christ and look upon his sacrifice on the cross for our sins, we are saved eternally. See, that's the parallel that was here. It's incredible what God was doing centuries before the cross ever came. And we see this picture in the, in the Old Testament of God exalting his name through the cross, even before the cross was there. It's amazing picture of the cross in the gospel right here in Numbers chapter 21. Amazing, amazing. You know what? When we look at and we see where God's heart was at, God's heart was this, that he would not just deliver them out of Egypt, out of their bondage, but they would go into the promised land. He want, That would be one move, go from slavery into this promised land. And God had promised his people goodness and blessing, a land flowing with milk and honey. God made that promise, but the people did not trust him. That's, a, that's what we find in the book of Numbers. People didn't trust God to honor his word. And so what happened is, is that they didn't trust him. And it would have been, it would have been from the beginning of Numbers to get to the promised land, 11 days. 11 days. Instead, you know how long it took? 40 years. 40 years. Because they chose not to believe God's promises to them. And what we find in God's word is that every man that was there when those spies returned, every man that was 20 years old or older died in the wilderness. Everyone. Take a look at God's word. Numbers 14, 29 through 31. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb and Joshua. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in. And they shall know the land that you have rejected. They said, no, we don't believe you, God. Roughly 1.2 million people died in the desert. That's an average of 82 people per day died in the desert because they chose not to believe God's promises. And what we find in, in Numbers, it's really interesting, is there's, the, you know, the, the Greek says it's called Numbers, and it's because they numbered the men of war in the beginning of the book, and they numbered them at the end of the book. And in the beginning of the book, they numbered the, the men in Kadesh Barnea. And at the end of the book, you know where they numbered the men of war? Kadesh Barnea, 40 years, no progress ended up in the same place as they were in the beginning of the book. It could have been 11 days. It was 40 years. And the reason that there was no progress is found in chapter 13. Chapter 13 is the key chapter in Numbers. We talked about the key chapter in, 
Genesis being chapter 3. If you don't understand chapter 3 in Genesis, the rest of the Bible makes no sense. And then you go, I think it's chapter 12 in Exodus. And now here in Numbers, it's chapter 13. That's the key. Take a look at God's word again. So chapter 13, starting in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. In other words, I want you to send your most mature, wise, spiritually growing men, the chief of your tribe. That's who I want. I want the top dog. That's what God was telling them to do. And it goes on, At the end of four days they returned from spying out the land. I didn't put this together until it was right in front of me, literally on my page. Forty days they were spying out the land. How many years did they spend in the wilderness? Forty years. Forty days, forty years. Interesting. Then verse 27. We came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. And there is the pivotal point in the book of Numbers. Right there. God sent the spies into the land. I wonder why. I wonder why. Speculation on my part, but I think God wanted to show them how great the land really was. He had made a promise to them. This land flows with milk and honey. You see, they knew what Egypt was like because they were there. They knew what they were leaving behind. But they had no idea what this whole promised land was like. I don't really know all that heaven is, but I know there's a promise that it's there. And it's beyond what I can grasp. And it's like God said, I'm going to send these spies in so you can see really how great this land is. And they saw it. And they said, yeah, this is fabulous. You know, Look at, look at the fruit. Look at this wonderful land. It's exactly what God said. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And these two spies came back, Caleb and Joshua, and they put two plus two together. They said, you know what? God told us that this land was flowing with milk and honey, and it's true. It is. And God said he was going to give us the land. That means that that land's ours, and he's going to give us the victory over these people. They put that together and they said, you know what? God made a promise to us and his promise was that this was a land he was going to give us and I trust God. And if God was true in the first part of it, which he was, I saw it with my own eyes, then this land is ours. God wants us to have it. Surely this is also true, that he will give us the victory over these people. Surely he will do this. Their faith was great because they had it in God not in their own strength. But then there were these ten spies. There were the ten spies. And they were supposed to be the spiritually mature ones, the wise ones, and they looked at it and said, no way, these guys are huge. These guys are huge. We can't beat them. Wow. What happened a year earlier? One year earlier the greatest army in the world, the Egyptian army, feared by every nation in a known world, God destroys. And now God can't take care of a couple of Canaanite tribes? 
You see, they kept looking with their eyes instead of understanding God's promises. And these great wise men who, you know, think of the percentage, if we go by percentages, 10 out of 12 said don't go. Who was wrong? Majority isn't always right. Usually it isn't. That is what I've heard before. These 10 spies said no, don't do it. Brothers and sisters, here's a lesson that we can learn is this, that fear rises when faith starts to weaken. Fear rises when faith starts to weaken. When we are looking at things through man's eyes instead of God's eyes. Let me ask you this. What are you afraid of? What causes you fear in your life? What is it? Let me ask you, how is that tied into faith? How is that tied into faith? What are you not believing about God? You're walking in fear in your own personal life. What truth aren't you embracing and, and saying, you know, I trust you, God, more than the circumstances, more than anything looks like? And you look at the world around us and you say, oh, no, what's going to happen? You know, all these godless leadership around the world and all the things that are happening. And we walk in fear. Really? Why? I mean, God took the world power and humbled it in Egypt. How about Nebuchadnezzar, the most feared man in the world, godless man, bow down and worship me. See, nothing's new under the sun. Even people in the world today that think they're running the place, bow down and worship me, we'll determine it all. And God said, oh no, I'm in charge. I'm in charge of this whole thing. And he will always be in charge. There's nothing for us to fear because of who God is. And we are his children. And so I'm not going to walk in fear. I'm going to walk in faith. I'm going to say, you know what, God, I trust you. Don't understand what you're doing. Things could get really uncomfortable, but I trust you. I'm not going to walk in fear. So what about you? Is there an area of fear in your life where you're not trusting in God, where your faith is weakened in the promises of God? And if you can define what that is and, and the Holy Spirit opens up your heart and says, you know, your faith is really weak in this area, then repent of it. Say, God, I'm sorry, forgive me. And ask him to increase your faith in that area so that you wouldn't walk in fear because God doesn't desire his people to walk in fear, but in faith. What we see is this. God had promised them the promised land that he would defeat their enemies, but they trusted in 10 spies' accurate report. It was an accurate report. Those were some bad men that lived in the land of Canaan. Okay, that wasn't a false report. That was a true report. So what? So what? That wasn't the point. And see, Caleb and Joshua understood that. They said, don't you get it? Don't you get this? This brings God even more glory. I'm glad they're huge. It's impossible. Only God could do this. This is great. This is a perfect setup for God to be glorified. Let's go. See, that's the point. They saw the impossible instead of seeing their great God. What about you? What's going on in your life that you're struggling with? It seems impossible. God is greater. God is greater. It may be true what you're looking at. It may be all the facts might be there. So what? God is going to be greater 
God is going to be greater. You see, brothers and sisters, one of the things that we need to learn from numbers and just in life in general is this, that we need to trust God and not our understanding or our reason when we feel God is calling us to do something. Trust God, not your reason, not your understanding. Trust God. Take a look at God's word. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. Isn't that exactly what's happening in, in numbers? There's a right that seems there's a way that seems right to man. These guys are too big for us. We can't go in there. We can't take it. It ends in death for them. God said, no, do it. I, wa- I told you to do this. Walk in it. And then we go to 2 Corinthians 5, 7, where we walk by faith and not by sight. You see, they were doing the opposite. They were walking by sight and not by faith. And what we see is this beautiful connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because the New Testament will have the principles And then the Old Testament will have practical ways that those principles are walked out, right? Positive and negative. Here's the negative. And so we see the principle in the New Testament, walk by faith, not by sight. Okay, well, that's not what they're doing in Numbers. Then we see other places where they do that. They walk by faith and not by sight. And we go, oh, that's what that looks like. So you see, it's not a a different God in the Old Testament and the New Testament, or that they're separate. They're all, they come together. There's this beautiful dovetailing in the Old Testament and the New Testament, they, they all point to the glory of God. And so we see that here, walk by faith and not by sight. Don't do it like they did in Numbers. And then in Isaiah 55, 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. That doesn't make any sense sometimes. doesn't make any sense sometimes that we need to be faithful and to walk by faith and not by sight. Because what will happen when that occurs is you'll grow spiritually. See, they didn't grow spiritually. They weren't walking by faith. They walked by sight, and then he just ended up in the same place, and there was no, they, were, they weren't spiritually growing. It's a picture of that. What about us? How do we walk by faith? You know, is that this mysterious thing, you know, you walk by faith? I think part of it is just simple things. You know, I believe God is the living God, and he still gives us direction in our lives, and maybe there's a time where you just, you know, you feel like, hey, you know, I got somebody's, I feel a burden in my heart for so-and-so. I'm going to give them a call. And say, hey, hi, how are you doing? You know, I said this last service. I said, okay, you don't have to be spooky when you do these things, okay? I think sometimes you think, hey, you know, I, I, I just wanted to call you this morning because I was having my quiet time, and the Lord laid you on my heart. I'm wondering, are you okay? Okay, now can you imagine receiving a call like that from me? You go, oh, no, it's Pastor Dan. What is wrong in my life? That, that, that God told something to Pastor Dan, right? <laughs> Not, so you don't have to be spooky and freak people out, okay? I have a charismatic background. I understand that kind of stuff. We used to, like, you know, we used to do that stuff, and you would, you'd freak people out, okay? So you could use this real quiet stuff and just say, hey, just calling you, just thought, I want to see how you're doing today. You know, so if I call you and you say, don't always, why did God say something in your quiet time to you? I'm not going to say it. But, you know, you, you go by that. You say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to trust that God's doing something. He's using me for his glory. You know, it's, it's little things like that. Maybe it's a verse that stands out in the Bible in your, in your morning quiet times, and you go, boy, I don't know who that's for. And then a couple days later you say, oh, it's for so-and-so, and you, so you share it with them. You know, I just want to share this verse with you to encourage you. We walk by faith moment by moment and day by day in the little things. You know, what does God's word say about who you are in Christ? 
Okay, is that truth real or not? Are you a child of God even when you fail? It's either true or it's not. And sometimes we have to take our thoughts captive. We're going to walk by faith. We're going to take the word of God and the promises that God has made us, and we're going to hold on to them, and we're not going to let them go no matter what happens. We're going to hold on, and we walk step by step by faith. And what happens is this. As you walk obediently to to the Holy Spirit and his promptings in your life, then what happens is you start going, oh, wow, that was the Lord. And your faith grows. And so then, next time it happens, you step out in faith again. And each time your faith is growing incrementally. And sometimes it's just being in prayer. Instead of automatically going down and buying something, just pray and ask God. Say, God, would you provide such and such? It's so easy for me to just go buy it. Would you provide it? Well, what happens when God does that? You go, man, can you believe that? I'm one of seven billion people on this earth, and God sent me a pair of sunglasses. Wow. Thanks, God. Maybe it's a brother or sister who says something like that to you. Hey, I got this pair of set of glasses. You need a pair of sunglasses? And all of a sudden you tear up and you go, well, they're not that great of sunglasses, but okay. And you go, no, no, I've been praying about that. Look at what God did. And then now you've encouraged them and you've encouraged yourself in the Lord. So walk by faith and not by sight. Things may seem impossible, but we have a great God and he's working in your life. He's working in your life and through your life. When we look at this, we see this, that God forgave the people for their doubt, for their sin, but there were consequences. There were consequences for their sin. The consequences in this situation where they spent 40 years in the wilderness and they never saw the promised land. That was a consequence of their sin. Take a look at God's word again. Numbers 14. But the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who, you, who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give them, give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he is a different spirit, has followed me fully. I will bring into the land to which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Hebrews 12, 6, For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. You see, God loves us when he disciplines us, and we don't like that. That's uncomfortable. But the word of God is very clear that God disciplines the ones he loves. Now, I want to say this. Consequences to sin can sometimes be long-term. Let me give you a couple examples. You decide you're going to go out one night, and you're just going to cut it loose, and you get too drunk, you get in an accident, and someone is killed. You know, that's the, the consequences of that are going to be through the rest of your life. Let me give you another example. You know that God's word says, do not be unevenly yoked. And you say, but I'm going to marry him anyway. And so you marry someone who's lost. You're a believer at this time, okay? And you marry someone who's lost, doesn't know Jesus. And for the next 40, 50, 60 years, there are consequences to that decision. And I know because I talk to those people in my office. Conflict in the home, conflict in whether the kids should go to church or not, all kinds of conflict that happens. 
And you look at that and you go, here's a decision to walk in sin and the consequences are long-term. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes that occurs. And what we like to do then is we kind of say, you know what? God, why are you mad at me? God's not mad at you. It says that he disciplines the ones he loves. But what you have to remember is this. God will never abandon you if you're his child. He never abandons. He never does. And as a matter of fact, he will do this. Even in the midst of the discipline, he will bless you. He will bless you. Because that's what he did in the wilderness. They were disobedient. He still blessed them. Take a look in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 5. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn off your feet. He says, I took care of you. Three million of you, I took care of you, even though you were in rebellion against me. And Deuteronomy 31.6, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Read that in the New Testament somewhere, didn't you? where it comes from, Deuteronomy. You see, God is going to discipline and love and fatherly love and fatherly care because he does care for you. And along the way, he will not abandon you, even though however long that discipline might be. And during that time, he will bless you. For example, let's go back and use that example of uh, marrying someone who doesn't know Christ and you're a believer. Many times you have children out of that union and they're a great blessing. You see, God hasn't abandoned you. People think that this Old Testament God is the God who's always angry at people all the time. And where's his love and where's his mercy? Okay? And so they say that the Old Testament God is this wrathful God and the God in the New Testament is the God of love. And I'm here to tell you it's the same God in both Testaments. It's a God of love. He's a holy God. So he judges sin. But he's a God of love. And we see that even here in Numbers, that he is judging sin because he is holy. But then we see the love of God as he's providing for his people, even in the midst of their struggles and their rebellion against him. He's, he's providing food for them. He's taking care of their clothes. He is being a father to them. So don't ever think that the Old Testament God is this God of wrath and the New Testament God is the God of love. He's both the God of wrath and God of love of holiness. That's our God. And we see him providing in this situation. And I know that if you're one of those people that is in a really long time of discipline, if that's you, I want you to know God hasn't abandoned you. He loves you. And he will sustain you. He will give you everything you need for life and godliness. That promise doesn't change. It's there for you all the time. And discipline can be hard, but God will be there and know that he loves you. So it's one of those lessons that we can learn through this section of Scripture. If you're there, know that God loves you. Well, what we find is this. Despite God's discipline and despite God's blessing and grace, Israel continued to be unfaithful, continued to be stubborn, and rebel and disobey God. Wow, doesn't that sound familiar? What, they didn't learn? Even after God disciplined them, they still rebelled? Kind of like us, isn't it? Look at these people. They, God would correct them 
and they'd just go right back to it. They'd rebel against God and be, uh, uh, resist him. And as a matter of fact, when we look in the book of Numbers, there are seven rebellions recorded. Seven rebellions in the book of Numbers. And here is the pattern that we see in, this, in these rebellions. First of all, the people sin. Okay? Then God punishes them. Then they pray to God. And God has mercy and saves them. That's a pattern of our lives. God is faithful. He doesn't abandon you because you failed, you've sinned, you've walked in rebellion. He's going to love you enough to discipline you, to punish you, for the purpose of bringing you back. That you might know that the place to, to be where your most joy is found is in Christ. And you know what we find in the book of Numbers? We see a pattern to the disobedience and the rebellion. See if this fits you anywhere. I know it fits me at times. The pattern is this. Rebellion starts with complaining about your circumstances. Complaining is so contagious. You know, you want to complain, you can always find somebody to complain to. Before you know it, they're complaining about everything. So it starts out with complaining about your circumstance, and it moves on. Take a look at God's word, 14, 2 through 4. All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would we had died in the land of Egypt, or would we had died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into the land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. It's always better. The grass is always greener, other side, right? What we see is that rebellion starts with complaining about our circumstances. And then we look with disdain upon God's blessing and provision. We indirectly impugn God's character when we complain about what we do or don't have. God, you're not taking care of me well enough. Don't you know I need a bigger house? Don't you know, God? And we get that spirit of complaining. Before you know it, we're angry at God's provision in our lives. It's not what we think it should be. But my neighbor, but my, but. And that's where this heart of rebellion, that's where the roots are. They grow so deep because we're not, we're going to complain about the circumstances we're in. Then we'd start questioning God's blessings in our lives, why we do or don't have, why do I have so much, so many, many problems and so many struggles and why don't I have this or whatever. We just say, you know what, I'm going to trust God. We believe we know better than God. And I would say this, one of the keys to being in, in the wilderness or in struggles so that we don't rebel against God is this. Be content to find your joy in Christ, not in your circumstances or your stuff. Again, be content to find your joy in Christ, not in your circumstances or your stuff. And God's word says it over and over and over again. Take a look at Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. 
In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Saying I can be content. I can be content no matter what I have. What's the key? Well, he says it right here. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's about Jesus. How can I handle all that? Because my contentment is in Christ. I'm at peace because I know I'm right with Jesus. It's not about what I perform. I, I can be content in that. I can be content in whatever comes my way. I tell you what, I'm a Brock Pur- Purdy fan today. You know why? I, I don't like the San Francisco 49ers. If you don't know, Brock Purdy was the last man picked in the draft this last year, and he's leading the San Francisco 49ers today in a playoff game that will send the winning team to the Super Bowl. Here's why I'm a fan of his. Because he basically said this. He said, he said, it doesn't matter what happens today. It doesn't matter what happens because my hope and my joy is in Christ. And it doesn't matter. You know, if, I, if I'm the hero or I'm the goat, uh, it doesn't matter because Christ is where I find my joy and my peace. Look at that. That's incredible. You see, he understands the truth that it doesn't matter what my circumstances are, whether it's abundance or it's a need. If I win the game, then I'm the greatest guy on the whole planet of the earth. And if we lose it, Millions of people are going to be angry at me. You know what? It doesn't matter. Because my joy and my peace and my satisfaction is in Christ. It's in Jesus. That's Philippians 4, 11 through 13. I can do all things. In other words, I can lose or I can win. It doesn't matter. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's about Jesus. It's about Him. Then it goes on in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Brothers and sisters, do you, do you understand this, that there are people that are brothers and sisters of ours in Christ right now that do not have food and do not have a place to stay, and they're still happy and content? Why can we be so discontent in America? You have all you need in Christ. Everything. And then it goes in Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Too bad those people way back then in numbers didn't realize, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I got no fear. I know how big those Canaanites are. It doesn't matter. God made a promise. I'm going to stand on it. Let's go. That's what Caleb and Joshua were saying. Let's go. I trust God. He made a promise. Brothers and sisters, be content. Be content. Whatever situation. What if you're in the wilderness for 40 years? Then be content. Be content. God will take care of you. He will never abandon you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He will always provide what you need to glorify his name. He will always do that. You see, Numbers is a record of human failure due to perpetual stubbornness and foolishness. Put me in that line, right? I'm right there. It's this picture of human failure against God's patience and continued faithfulness to his promises. You see, it's about God. It's about what he has done for us in Christ. It's about Jesus' performance for us, not our performance to earn favor. That's the picture that we see in Numbers. 
God is faithful to his promises even when we're unfaithful. Even with gifts of grace, we often rebel against God's plan. We think we know better than God. And really, you know, we're talking about this series and we're calling it the redemptive story. What we're seeing from this point on here is this. The redemptive story is really about our struggle to submit our hearts to God. Isn't that it? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today as your Lord and Savior, the battle is submitting our hearts to Jesus. His promises are true. They will always be true. He will always do his end of the deal. And we know that we're accepted and loved because of what Christ has done. The battle is our own dark hearts, thinking we know better than God. And so that's the battle that we look at, the, the story of redemption, God submitting our hearts to his greatness and his goodness and his kindness. You see, God disciplines us and he provides for us and he restores for us even when we're unfaithful to him. He will take care of us and love us with his fatherly care and love because that's about God, about who he is. And brothers and sisters, he provided everything for life and godliness that those people, three million people needed in the wilderness and I'm thinking he's big enough to take care of you and I in the same way. Right? And the best way I can conclude this sermon is reading from a hymn that was written in 1758. It's a couple of verses from Come Thou Fount. Take a look. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Here's my heart, Lord. Though it's weakened, hide me in your precious arms. The work of God. Let's pray. Lord, we are in awe of you. A book that just seems to be about people wandering around in a desert with nothing to do with us today is so relevant for us today, especially in our own wandering hearts. God, I pray that you would do a work in the midst of us, that you would cause us to be people who walk by faith and not by sight. God, our hope would be in you and your power and your strength and your glory and your grace. And God, you are our hope. And through Christ, we can do all things. So Lord, do this work in our midst that your name would be glorified in us and through us. And I pray this in Jesus' beautiful and glorious name. Amen. Let's